Well, if you all would, open your Bibles to John chapter 4 as we continue our consideration of the gospel according to John. John chapter 4, a very well-known passage of Scripture. So let's uh, begin reading in John chapter 4, verse 1. We'll be considering this text through verse 26. Uh, The account, of course, is the account of Christ's encounter with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, we will be reading, as I said, through verse 26, the account goes further than that. It would, if we would consider the whole account, it would probably be through verse about 42. Um, But let's, we'll break it up into uh, the first 26 verses. Hear the reading of God's word. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, the passage is actually quite straightforward. You know, it is, it is quite straightforward. And if you would just read on it, just read it and meditate 
um, it would feed your soul. It, it would do that. And, but interestingly, there are a number of things here that would help us. And as we look at this passage, I would just simply title this Christ as Minister. He was ministering to this woman at the well. And this whole account might appear to us as a chance occurrence. But don't believe for a minute that it was just a chance opportunity as sovereign Lord. You know, there's a, there's a, a verse here, in actually verse 4, where it says, but he must... But he needed to go through Samaria. Um, you know, there, I think the, the uh, King James says, for he must needs go through Samaria. Um, maybe that is an indication that this was a divine appointment where he needed to go through Samaria to meet this woman at the well, or else it may just simply be that in, in his pursuit of being redeeming the time and... and uh, being about his father's will, the closest avenue from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria. And this would be true that the direct route lay from Judea um, through to, to Galilee was through, um, through Samaria. But how many of us know that there are, and I think all of us have encountered these times of when we encounter someone and we, uh, we might not recognize them as opportunities as we should. And here Christ immediately, um, you know, he, his whole prerogative on earth was to go about his father's business. And whenever he encountered this woman, he immediately um, took opportunity. And uh, I think we can learn how that we can... Uh, minister the gospel to to others here. I think that would be probably my number one goal here is to simply see how our Lord ministered to this woman. You know, what is the intent of this passage and the fact that it is recorded for us? Um, But in this well-known account, Jesus shares the gospel with a woman of Samaria. And he gently leads her along until, you know, until the conversation culminates with this woman at verse 26. This conversation culminated in verse 26, and actually it's the last word that we know that he gave to her uh, was there in verse 26 because uh, the disciples returned in verse 27 and the woman left. But... um, it culminates with the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed to this woman. And I think that is a profound, uh, a profound illustration right there. That if, if we are uh, in an opportunity to share the gospel, that it is ultimately has to do with the person and the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have here in this short account, is that he ended with his, with who she was speaking with, um, and and but but how he gently brought her to that revelation uh, is is very interesting. With as we consider the uh, the backdrop, the social um, and even a religious stigma that was in place here um, before he ever encountered her. Um, and so he, he reveals his identity to, in verse 26 where he said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now this is the second private conversation recorded for us in the Gospel of John. We, we had the one in chapter 3 with Nicodemus and it was by night. It was a, it was a, uh, a very private thing there and here it is also I believe a private it isn't a public setting but it is a seems to be a one-on-one conversation and interestingly we have we have Jesus in many places speaking to multitudes but he did not shy away from sharing his time 
uh, with this woman on a one-on-one interaction. And we notice that, that we, when we just, as a side note, we notice very much the humanity of the Lord Jesus in this passage. There are numerous um, pointers or, or uh, points here that point to the hum- humanity of the Lord Jesus. Um, it may even simply be in, in verses 1 through 4 where, where, he, where, where Jesus knew that, there was a, that the Pharisees had heard that he was growing in prominence. Um, here in this, this first, the first four verses, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Now, there's some surmising about why that was important to Christ, but, but there, is, there is this idea, though, that when, you know, John was in prison at this point, I believe, and if, if John was a thorn in the sight of the Pharisees, then, then, then Jesus was a, a, a prickly pear. I mean, John had spoken to them. Who has told you to flee the wrath to come, you vipers, you know? But Christ, I mean, he, he really laid it on the, the Pharisees here. And maybe, maybe even more later, but, but it seems like the, the Pharisees traded one for the other. You know, they, they, uh, they had this, this John who spoke however he would to them now they had christ who did as well and and as the thought is that jesus understood that persecution was headed his way and that rejection by the pharisees and the jewish authorities was coming and so he departed from there early in his ministry very possibly because his disciples were not able to bear it at this time, the, the persecution that would have come. But he, so he left. But notice, though, that he did receive a warm reception in the region of Samaria. And that he actually, that, that word in verse 26, the clarity by which he declared his person and his identity was not shared that way with the Jews. It's interesting that they were, they, that those who, who uh, were down and out, like this Samaritan woman, Christ was very clear with her. I who speak to you am the Messiah. And the only other place I think that is as clear as that is where he spoke to the, the one he had healed, uh, the blind man in John 9 where he said something very similar. Let me look here. I think it is in John 9, in verse... uh, Yes. John 9, in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. When he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. So there you have it again, that, that very clear direction. But if you go back in John 10, where, he, where the, uh, in John 10 and verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And he said to them, I told you, you, don't, you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But see, he did not come across as clearly to the Jews who were antagonistic toward him as he did to this Samaritan woman and to this blind man that he had healed. And so it's an interesting point how that it seems Jesus made a distinction about who he revealed himself to. Uh, in relation to their situation. So, uh, anyway, so as we consider this passage, I want to just briefly consider 
that these conversations and why it was recorded for us, that there's a reason that we have this conversation with this woman, that it is recorded to us, indicates that there is much instruction here for us. Um, There are occasions, for instance, in Scripture where these conversations of Christ are not recorded. Uh, you remember the uh, the account in where where Jesus was just a young boy and he discoursed with the rulers and the and the authorities in the temple. That's not recorded at all. How, would you not have liked to hear what he said there? Because these known these scholars were amazed. It said, and they wondered at the words of wisdom that came out of this young boy's mouth. But they are not given to us. God and His Wisdom did not share those words with us. Take the, uh, take the conversation that Jesus had at, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke indicates that they were talking about his decease, but they, it, did not, it does not give us any substance about that conversation. It's not recorded for us. And then, would you not have loved to hear Christ speak about himself in Luke 24 where he expounded through all the Old Testament to these two disciples and, and when, he, when he told them, ought not the Christ to have suffered? And he went back through the Old Testament writings and expounded himself to them. Would you not have loved to see that? God in his providence didn't give that to us. But he gave us this. He recorded this conversation. The conversation that he gave to Nicodemus as well is recorded for us. Why do you think that is? It is because the content is applicable to us today. We don't need to know what, I, what Elijah and Moses talked to him. We don't need to know what Jesus was talking to, about with the, with the rulers at the temple. We don't need to know those things, but we need to understand the, the implications of this passage and how we are to reach out and minister to Samaritan women. So this woman is introduced to us as a Samaritan. Scripture notes two other Samaritans as well. And it's interesting to me that the gospel, that Jesus makes a point of of her identity, particularly her identity here. She was a woman of of Samaria. And then she herself acknowledges that, you know, it is strange that you would talk to me. I'm a Samaritan, you know. She, She acknowledges, she knows the stigma that's going on here. And John, notice that the quotations of what this woman said in verse 9 do not include for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was added by the writer of John. Uh, that John added that to his account. It was not something, I don't believe it was something that she said. It's just, he adds it on the back. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So common knowledge. But we have the account in Luke 10, for instance. Remember, in Luke 10 where a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and we know the story. He is, he is considered there by the Scripture as a certain Samaritan, and we call him, you know, today a good Samaritan, which, uh, you know, is not biblically accurate, if you think about it, because Jesus himself said there's no one good but God. But it is this certain Samaritan, and his, notice that he is contrasted to a Jewish priest and a Levite. But the passage in Luke 10 particularly points out his ethnic background. He was a certain Samaritan. And then his behavior was contrasted to the Jewish people, those who came by who were religious, and they walked by, and actually they they moved to the other side of the road. But the Samaritan did not do so. He went up to him and ministered to him. Contrasted very clearly there. Then you also have the account in Luke 17. In Luke 17, you have this account of the ten lepers. If you remember, 
that there were 10 lepers who cried for mercy. In Luke 17 and verse 11, he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a certain village, he met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. They were, as they obeyed him, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. Well, after this healing, the scripture makes this point. Notice. And he fell down at his face on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a none other than Samaritan. Isn't it interesting that the scripture makes these distinctions? He, he was of this ethnic background. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not, found, not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So now, in John 4, we have this whole account with the Samaritan. Three times that the Scripture makes this clear. Let's consider just briefly some, some uh, Samaritan origins. We have it in 2 Kings 17. In 2 Kings 17, it says this way. And this was back... When all this went down, the northern kingdom got carried away. Second um, Kings 17. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. But we have, I want to just point out that Samaria was the capital of the northern region or the ten northern tribes of Israel. And the king of Assyria carried them off, I think it was in 722 B.C., which would have been in like over a hundred and about 40-some years before uh, Judah was carried off by the Babylonians, 586. But here it says that in verse 24, that the king of Assyria brought people from... Um, let me read verse 23. The Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants to prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day... Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And because of their, that the, they they were carried off. But the the children of Israel were carried off. And then the king of Assyria brought people in from other places that he had conquered and brought them into Samaria and they dwelt in the possessions of the children of Israel in their cities, houses, and dwellings. And it was so, it says, and it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. And then they imported back a, a priest. And so it was a real mix-up here. We had, we had uh, these foreigners come into the land of Israel, dwelt in Samaria, and then they, if you go flip back to, to verse 33, they feared the Lord yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Now it's important for us to remember this, that they were entangled with the, with the gods of wherever they had come from, those false gods, their false idols, but they also had this influence from the children of Israel when they sent back this, uh, this priest to teach them about the, the God of the land. And there was just this mix-up, this, this hodgepodge of, of teaching that they had. And, and their practices were just a, a, a mishmash of, of truth versus the fallacies that came from their, from their, um, from their backgrounds of these foreign nations that, had, uh, that they had populated this land with. But now I want to 
So that, that is a brief history of Samaria and how that, that region came, um, came about. But in, I want to read you a note here that MacArthur has here in, in my study Bible. While Assyria led most of the populace of the ten northern tribes away, it left a sizable population of Jews in northern Samaritan region and transported many non-Jews into Samaria. These groups intermingled to form a mixed race through intermarriage. Eventually, tension developed between the Jews who returned from captivity and the Samaritans. The Samaritans withdrew from the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem and established their worship at Mount Gerzim in Samaria. Samaritans regarded only the Pentateuch as authoritative. As a result of this history, Jews repudiated Samaritans and considered them heretical. Intense ethnic and cultural tensions raged historically between the two groups so that both avoided contact as much as possible. So you have this backdrop this of social stigma that Christ, social and religious stigma actually, that Christ was able to minister through that. Put yourself in this place. Do we pick up these social and ethnic distinctives of our culture and refuse to minister to people of other ethnic cultures. I think it's, we have a very clear lesson and example from the Lord here that when he met this woman of of Samaria who came to draw water, we see Jesus ministering to her. Not only was this woman a part of this disdained community, but she was very likely disdained within her own community. I mean, she was probably an outcast even from her own. I mean, who carries water at high noon? I mean, think about it. Would you, would you go and fetch your water at the, the hottest time of the day and carry it home? Well, you might if you... If you were an outcast and you didn't want to meet other ladies from the community, she had a long history of, of uh, marital conflict. We see that. You have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now living with is not your husband. And it is very likely that she was all by herself for, for a reason, that she was stigmatized by her social standing in the community. But I want to point out to you that that did not hinder the Lord Jesus. And as he ministered to her here, notice that he he gave her the gospel. He spoke to her the gospel. But I didn't finish. I want to just, as a side note, point out the humanity of Christ here. We see that the Son of God truly took on flesh by the various points here. Now, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey. Right there you have an indication that, you know, he became tired. He was weary. The need for food was another obvious obvious um, indication. The, The disciples left to purchase food and... You have him asking for a drink of water from this woman. Um, and, and this would have been about, about 12 o'clock, about lunchtime, what we would call lunch. Um, you have these various indications that he truly, truly was humanity, that he was deity in the flesh. But notice that we could divide this passage, his interaction with her, into a number of, the, the first one is from 7 to 15. Let's, let's just consider this portion here. This woman had the same difficulty that Nicodemus had. When 
Christ spoke to her in spiritual terms. She, she immediately kind of went to the physical, the tangible. Well, if, if you have water to, to, um, to give, then how comes you're not, you know, you have no way of getting it out of this well. And, of course, Jesus said to her, the water that I give to drink, you will never thirst again. He said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, the, one that, the water out of Jacob's well, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, but nor come here to draw. We have a, a clear indication of what Jesus was referring to. And this, this passage, this conversation was similar to the one Nick, that he gave to Nicodemus in that he must be born of water and the Spirit. But if, if we look back in, in uh, the Gospel of John to John 7 and verse 37, I want to read this to you. John seven thirty seven through 39. If you would flip back. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, which is what it means to come to him, if anyone comes to me and drink, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When he speaks about receiving water from the Spirit of God, he is referring to the Holy Spirit, where that whoever believes in him would would receive this Holy Spirit that would become a fountain of life within us. That is what he is referring to, this Samaritan woman. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But that Holy Spirit that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This woman was, it is clear that what she was doing with her life, the things that she was pursuing were not satisfying her. How many husbands do you have to go through to figure that out? I mean, five husbands? I mean, she was, she had pursued these things and she was not satisfied. Jesus said that if the water that I have to give you will never thirst again. You will never thirst in a way that is, that is not met. She was, she, was, she was hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And if you go back to verse 10, when he asked her in verse 8 to give, her, to give him a drink, and she said, well, why are you speaking to me? Because I'm a Samaritan woman and you're a Jew. Why would you ask a drink from me? And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, you, if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he tells her that because you don't know who you're talking to, if you knew who I, I was, you would ask for me to give you a drink. And as he relates these things to her, and as he speaks this gospel message to her, she comes to this point where she says, well, give me this water that I don't ever thirst again, nor come here to draw. So we see that she was still not grasping the truth of living water. Interestingly, what Jesus did next is what was is something that we must not bypass. Notice how he gently leads her to um, 
to point out her need. She said, he said to her, go call your husband. Well, it seems like just something kind of out of the blue. But she needed to understand that he knew her, her need before she was willing to receive what he had to offer. And so the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Just think with me. If you were in her shoes, you would be happy to just say, I have no husband. Hoping that it wouldn't go any further than that. I would like to point out how Jesus gently showed her and how he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't clobber her. He didn't, he didn't um, abuse her with the truth. He actually came alongside of her and said, he, he, he found an opportunity to commend her. You see, he said, notice what he says. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. I think that is a that that is actually a way to try to you know to, to not go more not say more than she has to. Well, what did Jesus say? He said, "Well, you have you have well said. You have spoken truly. You have you spoke truly. You have well said." You know, I'm challenged by this approach, that gentle approach that just simply points out dear lady what about those five previous guys you know I have no husband for you have had five husbands and we know nothing about those five husbands we don't know did was she widowed or was she divorced was she but one thing that's a clue that those five husbands, while we don't know much about those, we know that the last one that she was living with was an, in, was an immoral situation. It was an immoral situation here. The one whom you now have is not your husband. And by, by an interesting side note here is that by this little statement, Jesus makes it clear that just living with somebody does not make you married. You know, that just this little, little bitty nugget here makes it clear that Jesus was saying that marriage is more than living with someone. Even if you're committed to that one, that one person, it is more than that. You can't have a husband just by living with a man. That biblically, marriage is always restricted to a public formal, official, and recognized covenant. It's not just something that you can shack up and call yourself married. And so he says, in that you spoke truly. You know, with, verses, with verse 18, Jesus clearly showed this woman that he knew something about her that she had not conveyed to him. And so she said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this next question, again, it just seems a little ironic. I don't know, was she trying to evade the conviction of verse 18? Or was she genuinely interested in the truth? Here she, she noticed that Jesus was a prophet. Now she had the opportunity to, to ask him this question. Our fathers worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Very probably they were on the slopes of it or at the foothills of this mountain. Probably very prominent from this place. Our fathers worshipped over here. And you Jews say that you have to worship in Jerusalem. That it is the place where one ought to worship. Well, here again we see Jesus simply coming alongside and using that question to teach her, to bring her along. You know, sometimes we ask, the, you know, we, we would say, well, no, wait a minute. Let's talk about your five husbands. Instead of just simply saying, okay, 
that question you have, you know, Jerusalem really was prescribed as a place to worship. That Jehovah God had prescribed Jerusalem as a place to worship. And notice what he told her. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. That there is going to be an economy in the church of Jesus Christ that the place of worship is non-significant. It will be completely out of the question. We, we won't need to have a prescribed place of worship. And we can apply this even today in our own hearts, brothers and sisters. As we look further in here, and he talks about the attitude of worship is that which is absolutely essential. It's not the place where you gather to worship, but it is what you are doing there, where you are assembling, and how that your attitude is, and how and who that you're worshiping, and, and are you worshiping in the prescribed manner? Not where you're doing this. Do we, are we willing to recognize those who don't worship with us here? Who choose to worship elsewhere? If they're worshiping in spirit and in truth, do, are we willing to recognize them as our brothers and sisters? Or are we raising up someplace as the Jews did. You've got to worship here or I won't accept you. You know, we have this, sometimes we have this, well, I think what it ultimately comes down to is we're trying to build something that is us. Instead of worshiping the Father, we're trying to build something that is us. And it, it, we, we push out the Samaritans. But Jesus is telling her, look, the hour is coming. And I believe what he's referring to is when he gives his Holy Spirit to the church. When that, on that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, that it did not matter now where the church assembled at all. It was how they assembled and whether they were worshiping in spirit and in truth. Notice what he tells her. You worship what you do not know. Now, remember what we read about in Kings, 2 Kings 17. The mishmash, the hodgepodge of doctrine, the, the mixture of false and even true. It was a mishmash, as I said. They worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And what that simply means, I believe, is that the word of God was given to the Jewish people. The information that God had given to the Jews was meant, that, and, and Christ came through the lineage of the Jews. The, these, all the oracles of God, as Romans says, were given to the Jews. And we do... We do well to recognize that what Jesus was saying is that God has prescribed a way to worship. And unless we find that, and unless we embrace what he has given to us, his direction, we worship what we do not know. But salvation is of the Jews. And so he clearly told her, you know, you are wrong. You know, he, he clearly pointed out, and I think, I think we must never in our, in our ministry to others just gloss over our differences, but gently lead them through, a, through a, an expository, an expository of, of, of truth and not neglect that we have genuine doctrinal differences that must be resolved. And he says, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship. I want you to just see that. 
True worshipers will worship. They will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Now, something stood out to me as I studied this and pondered this. I believe that the Jews had taken the truth that God had given them. Jesus clearly implies that the truth came through the Jews, and we know it did. But they had simply brought the truth that God had given them to an outward form. They had simply embraced the laws as, if I, if I give myself to this in external worship, I am fine. They had simply brought the worship of Almighty God down to an outward form. That's what the, that's what the Jews had done. They disregarded the inward spirit panting after God, desiring after God, loving the Lord God with all your mind, heart, soul, body, and strength. They had disregarded that spirit side of worship. Now you look at the Gentiles over here, the Samaritans. They had disregarded the truth. They had brought in... a hodgepodge of things and they had maybe given themselves to passionately do this but notice that the Gentiles were not worshipping according to the truth the Jews were not worshipping spiritually I was just struck with this for the first time seeing that Jesus is addressing the fallacy of both Jew and Gentile here that God is looking for such a people who embrace the truth and love the truth and by the fountain of, the living, of that living water that's within us, by the Holy Spirit of God, we are now able, brothers and sisters, to worship Him in spirit and truth. That that is where we must be. That here... If, if we have not received that living water, you're not going to accomplish in worshiping in spirit and truth. Because that Holy Spirit, that fountain of living water inside of you will guide you into all truth, remember? For it will take of mine and declare it unto you, is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He will take of mine and show you he will apply it, in other words. And what does John say, the writer of this very gospel and the epistle of 1 John? You will not need a teacher. You will have an anointing that will guide you into truth. And so, unless we receive this fountain of living water that Jesus was teaching this Samaritan woman, we will never worship in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a, another must for you. If you remember, we had like three of those in John 3. You must be born again. Now here he says, those who worship God as spirit they must worship in spirit and in truth. That God is not content for us to bring his requirements to an outward form and we just simply fit in. No, it is something that our spirit is engaged. We're excited about it. Our, our will is engaged. Our passions are inflamed. And we are aligned with the truth of his revelation. And so we see that he showed her her need for this, that, that all of the things that she had been pursuing, whether it was with her marriages, those were like an empty water bucket. They would not satisfy. And so as he relates this to her, this, this woman said to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Uh, 
And so even the Samaritans as well were, were awaiting a Messiah. They believed in the Pentateuch, the five, the, the, the five books of Moses. And they knew of this Messiah. And notice that she also had an understanding of this Messiah, that he would tell us, he would teach us all things, that this Messiah, when he comes, will, go, will show the way for us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Isn't that a beautiful, just following this whole discourse, he reveals his identity to her. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And I think it was, um, I think it was, well, one of my commentaries, one of my commentaries, I, I think it was Matthew Henry, Henry pointed out that the Lord does reveal himself as he speaks to us. You know, it is, it is as he speaks to us about his work, his ministry, and, his, and the revelation and will of God, that we become aware of his identity, of his identity. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to, I want to close just with the exhortation to see ourselves in John 4. We are called to follow the example of the Lord Jesus as he ministered to this Samaritan woman. Do we have an agenda other than what Christ did? He clearly and emphatically stated that his prerogative is to do the will of his Father. Is that our heart here? If it is, then I think we will embrace or at least endeavor to reach the Samaritans. We will endeavor to reach out to them and to minister to whoever is even now socially outcast from our culture. Uh, Our gospel is uniquely open to those. Have you ever considered that? Our gospel of Jesus Christ is uniquely open. And we see that in the declaration of how Jesus clearly identified himself to this woman. The Jews, those who think they are are good, they don't have this privilege. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see your intent here, the why that it is recorded for us. Lord God, we pray that it would speak to us as we endeavor to be ministers of the gospel, as Christ ministered the gospel to this woman. Help us, Father, to see the pattern that we do not disregard sin or fallacy, but that we share the gospel and bring people along. Father, I just pray that you would bless this. Thank you so much for this fountain of living water that you've given so many of us here, that we can truly worship in spirit and in truth, that you are still seeking such to worship you, Father. And I pray that even today, you would seek more of us in this way, that we might worship you from the inside. And Father, we pray, we commit each one of you of, of these people who have heard this word to you today, and we ask your blessing on us through Christ. Amen.